And on the panel today, we have Gayatri Vengateswaran, Assistant Professor at the School of Media, Languages and Cultures at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia. So let's talk about, it's our fault if 18-year-olds are immature in politics, says Hadi. Yes. yes. So let's get to that. Are our 18-year-olds mature enough to vote, you think? Yeah. Actually, when I read the story first, I was a bit confused. I wasn't sure whether he was saying, no, they're not mature enough. And then read again and again and thought, okay, now he's saying, now I understand what he's saying. And uh, strangely, I agree with his... Uh, really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, because I think there is a point to say that it is actually all our responsibility as well mm. in terms of how we uh, maybe raise political awareness and education okay. of everyone. And I think it's not actually just for the young ones, but also our peers, our contemporaries. And you know, yeah. political education is something that goes on. Yeah. Yeah. On for and the on. longest time, I suppose we were... Slightly suppressed. Yeah, if you think yeah, about it, right? Yeah, I yeah. mean, it, it was uh, not just suppressed, but deliberately done to prevent politicization or political uh, participation from a young age. Right. So I think what the past president is saying is is absolutely true that we cannot now say that hey, you know, young people are not mature enough to vote because we should ask ourselves if we've done enough to get them uh, ready at a young age. So yeah. I think that there's he also alludes. And I think many others have said that it's not just about changing the age, but also making sure that it is supported by the sort of more broader changes in education system, participation in politics. Right. Um, the younger you are, it, it should be okay. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I think we are maybe a little bit too obsessed with this maturity. What is an indicator of maturity? You can be 50, you can be 60, 17, you can be completely immature. I think Why what do you is... look at me when you say that? Though? <laughs> okay, yes, anyway. I was, I was trying to look at the background. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it is about actually what uh, we need to get people to understand mm. is their role in, in, in politics. Right. And, and, you know, just to be able to say that, look, you have choices, and actually, as a young person, you already begin to make uh, those choices. Right. So maturity is something that I think we maybe need to be a little bit more critical when we uh, yes. discuss it, this topic, right? It does right? not mean mature. No, right, yeah. I mean, for some of us, we would say, yeah. how did the BN government stay in That's power for so long? Uh, you know. But you know what? How would 18-year-olds being able to vote change politics? People have been asking that. But then a lot of older folks, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. them voting also didn't make any big changes, mm -hmm. right? But mm -hmm. as you see in Hong Kong, there's Absolutely. a lot of political awareness yes, yes. amongst the, the youth over yeah, there. Yeah. But for us, 18-year-olds? Yeah, I think uh, to me, actually, I'm very encouraged by this move to lower the age because it gives us an opportunity to say that, you know, from when you can be politically conscious, you know, you have ownership uh, of all the decisions as well. And I think that is, in fact, more important rather than saying whether you're mature or not. Uh, or, or not. Right. And we should be saying, look, what is uh, at stake here and how can you drive the direction that is good for, for the future? And I think, like, you know, there are many, many things that we are now re realizing right. the younger people are going to have to clean up after our mess, right? Yes, right? yes. So get them involved now yeah. and, and let them decide how they want to deal with the with the climate, yeah. with you know issues like corruption. And to, we like know that. that they want to step up anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think that part of the, maybe what we felt as young people not being interested in politics could be party politics. Right. And that's not the only way of actually getting engaged. Yeah. All right, coming up, uh, we still have Gayatri Vengatiswaran in in the studio with us to talk about B40s and getting them to own homes through additional income. That's all coming up next on Front Page. Right now, though, here's Kelly Clarkson, Because of You on Light. 
And we're back on front page where we discuss the biggest news affecting us in and around our country. On our panel today, Gayatri Vingateswaran, Assistant Professor at the School of Media, Languages and Cultures at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia. She's feeling refreshed because she just came back from a nice summer holiday. So now, let's talk about the serious stuff, Gayatri. Mm. Ministry to find a way for B40 groups to own homes through additional income. And uh, to be honest with you, I don't even own my own home. It's yeah. hard. Yeah, you know, it is. It's expensive. It is. Yeah, it is. And I think a lot of people, especially, you know, young people who've been in the market just for a few years are uh, struggling. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. You know, even those who've been working for a number of years yeah. struggle with uh, wanting to pay the mortgage. I think partly to say that, look, some kind of stability can come if you have assets, right? right. I mean, I think any financial planner will tell you that. But I think it's not just about saying go out and buy because we've seen several schemes before this. Correct, yeah, in yeah. the past, right? And, and How effective were those? Yeah, I think one of the major issues we've seen with uh, schemes to so-called help those in the lower economic bracket is that these properties get taken up by people who actually shouldn't be buying those Correct, properties yeah. at all, right? I remember there was one story about a woman who could fly business class or first class. Yeah. She was staying in one of these affordable homes for uh, before. Or at least right? owning Yes, a yes. number of them, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So uh, so then it defeats the entire purpose because the ownership does not actually trickle down to those who need it the most. Mm. So I think having a much more rigorous sort of a, a, a process to make sure that people who deserve it get it. Oh, you uh, mean a screening process, right? A much better screening right, process. Right. But that also means that a lot more people need to get into the system. And, and they're not at the moment. And they're right? not because a lot of the, the target groups or the, the families, uh, individuals, maybe also don't have, uh, are not part of the formal economy, right? So I think that, you know, it's going to take a lot as well to try and address this because you don't know exactly who's out there right. who needs it the most because either you're partially only getting uh, income, you're struggling with many other uh, costs as well. So I think that it's it's a good aim to encourage ownership because at least you have something that's giving you a sort of a long-term return in that sense. Right, right. But I think maybe thinking about financial planning for everyone and also for those in the B40, it is also about knowing how to manage their their finances would be also very useful. So yeah. it's not just saying get a home and everything is, is fine. Yeah, it would yeah. be one of the, the key measure. Yeah. But we'll have to resolve a couple of things. How we make sure that they are part and parcel of the economic system, yeah. how they can sustain Maybe themselves. Maybe it's just a step one because it's not a band-aid. You can't... Sure, sure. Even the M40 guys, Yeah. right? A lot of them don't have no finance, proper yeah. financial planning. Yeah. And and we come back to the this question again and again, which is how are we ensuring that when you have all these mega development development projects, yeah, what is actually being uh made available for those from the lower economic bracket? Right. You know, so so that we're not having a glut in terms of extremely luxurious homes or whatever. How do we make sure that the planning actually takes this into account? So you have one thing you want to solve, which is let's get more people owning assets. But actually, in order to, to, to come towards that uh, objective, you have to deal with also the fact that our planning or the approvals of development yeah. is really kind of screwed yeah. up and, at the moment. Fact, <laughs> entire infrastructure in terms of, uh, the, it's a systemic issue, yeah. right? Yeah. We're speaking to Gayatri Vingateswaran, Assistant Professor at the School of Media, Languages and Cultures at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia, on front page. And uh, we get her thoughts on... Uh, E-commerce, that is next on Light. 
You're back here with JD covering for Shaz on the Light Breakfast. And it's time for Front Page once again. We discuss the biggest news affecting us in and around the country. We have oh, still Gayatri Vingateswaran still sipping on her coffee. She is the assistant professor at the School of Media, Languages and Cultures at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia. And we have to talk about this right now. E-commerce. It's a, it's a big word, but suddenly it's been floating around because the government is uh, developing an e-commerce system to reduce the cost of living. How does that work, to be honest with you? Because I come from the tech industry. I come from a startup world. And it's complex. Yeah. And then when you put it into the scope of a country, running a country, it gets even more complex. Yeah. I think, uh, well, actually, I and see, you come from this background. You obviously know that e-commerce is not a new thing. It's yeah. been floating around for many, many, many years already. It seems like a newer, this excitement after going somewhere and saying, woo. We've seen something happen elsewhere. Yeah. Can we do it here? But it's interesting how in the in the story it's about e-commerce and cost of living. And I was trying to figure out how they were going to make that link uh, necessarily, especially for those you know. If you think about cost of living, so we are assuming that they're talking about the citizen, the consumers who've been saying things are really you know prices are going up, yep, so we yep. can't afford all of this. Yeah. So I'm trying to figure out okay, where does e-commerce come into this picture yeah. in order to address what? was the issue in the 14th general elections, which was cost of living. Correct. In in that story where it quotes the minister, uh, Saifuddin, it's like, um, okay, let's try to adopt online shopping, among others, right. uh, as a way of reducing the, the cost. Uh, the story does go on to, to say that, look, you know, uh, we do have issues of trust. People have complained about delivery times and Correct. things yes, like that. So yes. that's that's the other problem. Yeah. So I feel like it's about a lot of things, but not necessarily being very specific. Yeah. I think if you want to talk about cost of living, you have to talk about cost of living, also income at the same time, yeah. and not say that... If you move everything online, things are going to be cheaper. Correct. Yeah, because I think he uh, there's, there's an assumption that if I buy a mobile phone or yeah. if I buy a smartphone online, yeah. it's going to be cheaper and yeah. everything. It should work for everything. So if you're trying to control the cost, the price of chickens yeah. during Chinese New Year or yeah. whatever it is, let's go online. Online, yeah. It doesn't really work I don't think way. it works that way. I think that they it, it is possible to make things a lot more efficient mm. ar- around the or along the supply chain. But I don't think necessarily that it will affect or give a lot of returns for those who are struggling Correct. for what I think are base, basic and essential needs. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe for someone who has the luxury of saying, Can, should I go out to the store and buy something? Or should I just book it on Lazada and, and get it delivered? Yes. I think there is a certain assumption of privilege there as well, yeah. right? Correct, uh, yes. Your net connection, yeah. that you have the speed, you can afford. So I think that it's not so much a cost of living, but I think it really helps with a lot of the other things in terms of consumer interests, you know, right. in terms of quality, the delivery time. Yeah. But also, again, coming back to whether this actually puts more money into your pocket, Correct, I'm not exactly. so sure. It's a great yeah. concept. I suppose what they're trying to do is uh, eliminate the middleman or yeah. eliminate as many middlemen as possible. Yeah. So that the prices isn't uh, as high, but I still don't see how it puts more money back into our pockets. Yeah, and also I think it doesn't address the fact that, um, you know, a lot of people go out to buy things because it's not just about buying things. There's so many other yeah. cultural, habitual, traditional sort of things that's associated with certain practices. Yeah. Coming up, the Home Ministry to decide on decriminalization of drug addicts. We're going to get Gayatri's thoughts on that next on Front Page on Light. 
We have once more Gayatri Vingates Warren, Assistant Professor at the School of Media, Languages and Cultures at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia, to help us dissect what's been going on around the world, especially here in Malaysia as well. But a big chunk of what's been talking about recently, it's been highlighted, it's been discussed, I suppose, the whole ministry to decide on decriminalization of drug addicts soon. How does this benefit the drug addicts who are still out there? I mean, like, they're... They you know, haven't been caught, I suppose, and the ones who are already in mm. the system. I think it's actually a good move because studies have shown, there's been a lot of research already that show that criminalizing drug use or even possession of, you know, what we all know is a lot of them are small quantities and right, right, for yeah. self. To criminalize it is really, you know, it, it really cuts off any opportunities for people to actually manage themselves better. Correct. Um, I think there's been so much work done and, and friends I know who've worked and spent a lot of years looking at uh, harm reduction as a much more effective way of dealing with people who have substance abuse. So I think it's actually moving in the right direction because this is what we ought to be doing, which is to say, look, if you are dependent on drugs, uh, we need to you know address that dependency rather yeah. than say you are a criminal for using drugs and, Correct, and having yeah, yeah. and because I think I think it's... I'm not trying to praise the West or anything because uh, sure. the US has a huge issue with putting drug addicts exactly. behind bars yeah. but I think a lot of it is because we misunderstood it be uh, thinking that it was a cause but it's actually a symptom yeah, yeah. of it right yeah and a lot of them do have issues uh, that are associated with socioeconomic backgrounds correct and, yes and also you know you, you depression for example right so I think that you know putting someone in jail because they actually have problems yeah. that they need help with doesn't really solve the problem and Correct. we have we have seen that this does not reduce yeah. you know the kind of uh, punitive actions don't reduce yeah. uh, dependency so i think that if the home ministry is in fact able to get enough support for this i think it's 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 something that we should really applaud because i think it also radical, radically changes the way we view the whole spectrum of drug usage yes. dependency yeah. and separating it from what the core problem is which is the kind of you know trafficking which i i believe has uh, or requires the kind of criminal punitive action correct yes um so i think we need to separate what is the crime and what is, in fact, a, a problem of dependency. And yeah. I think that will change also the way we provide the kind of services. So it's not just about rehabilitation, but really helping people manage their own uh, dependency. So yeah, for those who are outside, I think, uh, or still sort of using it, I think it will require a lot of work to sort of reach out to them to right. do all this outreach. Yeah. What do we do with those who've been arrested? Well, Correct, you know, yeah. so this is where I think it's a question we ask for so many other things in this current environment because we're saying we need to change the laws for so many other things as well. Yeah. So that's going to be a headache, but I think it's a headache that we must actually... Uh, demand for and yeah. go through because you know I come from a background where I say you have to decriminalize speech so right. we have to change our minds as well and think no just because you say something wrong it shouldn't be Correct, criminalized yeah. here of course it takes a lot more effort but it is about re revamping our uh, sort of the, the penal system yeah. and also thinking about uh, maybe transitions very nice Moving on, we talk about how flying might be very, very different for us here in Malaysia. We're going to get to that next on Front Page. On Light. Back on Front Page right now, we're discussing the biggest news affecting us in and around our country. On our panel today, once again, is Gayatri Venkateswaran, Assistant uh, Professor at the School of Media, Languages and Cultures at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia. And this is a big one that we have to have to talk about. It is about how 
our national carrier may be bought over soon because the Air Asia co-founders and the partners are they're beginning to build mm. a war chest to buy mm. to bid for mm-hmm. Malaysia Airlines. Mm. What does that mean for us? Okay, two things. One, I think that we, you know, many of us have this sort of a, a kind of sentiment value for Correct. Okay, yes. Malaysia Airlines. Yes, yeah. yeah. Despite its ups and downs and um, you know, many of the issues that, that, that has happened. In fact, I think with the last two big incidents that have affected uh, Malaysia Airlines, I think a lot of Malaysians have rallied behind the airline company, yes. in fact, yeah. to provide support for the staff and, and all of that. Yeah. But I think the elephant in the room <laughs> for that uh, carrier is that it is really in trouble financially and, yeah. and in terms of sustaining its uh, business model. This is a field that obviously is seeing so much of competition. Uh, I think the the ways in which different airlines have sort of competed with, you know, the, the kind of long haul experiences have really changed the way also business is done. Right. So that's why we see, for example, like Asia trying to come in into, as one of the bidders for yeah. this. They're not the only ones. I would be extremely worried if, if it was... So this is the second point. I'm, 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 I'm actually very worried right. if it's Asia that sort of gets Wins a it. hold because then we are seeing this inflated... It's, it's a monopoly. I mean, yeah, we had a national carrier that was there Correct. for a long time. Yes. Yeah. I think competition always is great, but yeah. it's not a cheap industry. I think that if we want... A Malaysian carrier, which is something that for image, for the kind of national value is, is great, but maybe we have to think about also not having one yeah, because, as a national I mean, carrier. When yeah. you think about how things work, as far as I know, it could be just south of the border. It's yeah. not exactly considered a national carrier, Yeah, right? In Hong Kong, it's not a national carrier. There's, you don't really need no, and we are, in fact, in a location where we have access to so many others. Yeah. And if you have to travel, it's actually a lot of, that. it's very convenient. Yeah. So I think that apart from that sentimental value, and of course, I mean, it's not just sentimental value, but it is a, a, a brand that has stayed with us for so long. But I think we must come to grips with the fact that it is time to actually think about whether this is indeed our priority. Right. I think the decision by the Kazana, for example, to say, look, we can't, we, we shouldn't be pumping in money. And I agree yeah. with that. We shouldn't be pumping money into it. But I would caution against, or at least for us to think about not having a monopoly. So you're not having the same owners yeah, yeah. of every Like what we player. see in the e-hailing Exactly, here, right? exactly. Yeah. I think that was really unfortunate that we came to that point with yeah. Grab being the, the the biggest one, even though there are other competitors now, yeah. much smaller. So I think that would be my main concern for what is happening now. So the more the bids, the better. Yeah. And I think uh, it is indeed important to see if each of the bidders are coming up with actually really value for money uh, uh, investments yeah. and well. proper business plans and and don't get this kind of government support. I don't think we need yeah. any more of those. Gayatri, thank you so much for thank being so much. here on Front Page. Very, very insightful. Always lovely to, uh, lovely to have you here. Gayatri Vingateswaran, Assistant Professor at the School of Media, Languages and Cultures at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia. That was Front Page.